Boxing and other forms of competitive fighting, such as mixed martial arts and wrestling, there's an unofficial title called the Pound for Pound Champion. Pound for Pound in this context is a ranking used in determining the better fighters relative to their weight class. If there was a Pound for Pound Tag Team Championship in commercial radio, our guest this week and his longtime on-air co-host, John O'Brien, would certainly be in the conversation to receive such a designation. For the past 24 years, they've dominated morning ratings in the medium-sized radio marketplace of Springfield, Massachusetts, doing a talk show on what is otherwise a classic rock music station owned by Saga Communications, W-A-Q-I, known by its branding handle, Rock 102. This team talks about everything from serious politics and local news to all aspects of pop culture to locker room silliness, as well as the highly dramatic crises they face in their personal lives. And when I say they're successful, that's an understatement. In their home market of Springfield, Massachusetts, where I live and where I publish Talkers Magazine, they're known by as many, if not more, people than the mayor or local congressional representatives. They are true local superstars. And this fame has spread far beyond the handful of exits that are found in the Springfield area on Interstate 91. Rock 102 has a booming signal that covers the adjacent market of Hartford, Connecticut, and it's heard as far north as Vermont and as far south as New Haven, and then some. The son of two psychologists and a graduate of Marquette University, this extremely bright and funny man has a background that includes being a classic rock DJ in his hometown of Milwaukee and a stand-up comedian for nine years before joining Rock 102 in 1995. Our guest this week is Mike Baxendale, better known to his loyal audience and friends in the radio industry as Bax of the powerhouse morning radio show, Bax and O'Brien. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Interview, the weekly podcast from Podcast One for media freaks, pop culture aficionados, political junkies, and the philosophically curious. Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MH Interview. I can be reached directly via email at michaelatalkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll get right into this week's interview with one of the most successful local hosts in American media market radio today. But first, a very quick programming reminder. If you like this show, you're going to love the Laura Ingram Show podcast on Podcast One. Join Laura as she takes on politics and pop culture with some hard-hitting guests and takes your calls. Download the Laura Ingram Show podcast every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Okay, here we go. An uninterrupted conversation with Mike Baxendale of the Baxen O'Brien Show at Rock 102 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Bax, welcome to the Michael Harrison interview. 
you are doing a show, a talk show on a music station. That's a whole category of talk show hosts who really don't get that much attention or focus when the term talk radio is used. It, it, what's, what's interesting about it is, is that when we first started, um, I don't think anybody in management thought of us as a talk show. I think what they wanted us to be was a classic rock morning show. And I think what just became a natural transition is we morphed into a more traditional talk show host. That the, but the, the station, the call letters, you know, were still playing music. And as it turns out, there's dozens of us out there, maybe more than that, who, who have figured out a way to, you know, stay with that format, but, I'll, but also, you know, embellish what they do with our own brand of talk local in particular is what we've managed to, to, to hold on to. Actually, that's the way Howard Stern evolved into being a talk show host. Uh, Howard Stern was a shock jock. I mean, that's a term I don't care for, uh, especially nowadays when it's completely irrelevant, but people still say shock jock. Uh, he was a DJ who did a lot of talking yep. and was pretty off the wall, obviously. He pushed the envelope, and slowly but surely, more people wanted to hear him, or people wanted to hear more of him than the music. And that's uh, and then eventually, you stop playing records. I remember when uh, this type of show would have two records per hour, two tracks, then one per hour. You went through that whole thing, too, where eventually there was just no more music, or you played the music maybe between hours to go to the bathroom or something. But right. uh, that was quite a long evolution, wasn't it? It, it, it was. I think when we first started, and this would have been in 1995, we were playing as many as five songs an hour. Then it went down to, you know, three, and then two, and one. And then, you know, finally we just said, you know, what are we, what are we really doing this for? I mean, you know, if people are listening to the show, they're not necessarily listening to hear the Eagles one more time. They're listening because the Baxter O'Brien show is saying something compelling that is bringing that audience in day after day. And I think once once we you know, realized that that was what was happening and we had had some longevity and success under our belt, that it just seemed natural. Well, let's just do away with the music and see how it goes. And that's been, I mean, that's been a number of years since uh, that happened with the music while important to the radio station became less and less relevant to what we were doing on our show. How have you uh, balanced uh, the fact that the station is a culture station, meaning it's music, it, it, it's not a political station, it's not known for its news, it's a, it's, a, it's a pop culture station. How have you balanced the topicality on the show with that fact, with the stationality? Because I know, listening to you, that you do a lot of politics. You talk to the mayors, you talk to the local uh, Congress uh, mm -hmm. members. Uh, right. You do get involved in politics, but you also, you and O'Brien have never, ever really given up that kind of locker room, hangout, silly, almost goofball approach, and yet you pivot back <laughs> into serious stuff. Uh, talk about that. I, well, I think, you know, it, well... Very much of that is by design, and I think some of that goes back to, you know, you talked about Howard Stern. You know, years ago, you know, we were competing directly against Howard Stern when he was broadcasting in um, when one of his one of his stations in his network was in Hartford. And uh, you know, the question is, you know, do you try to out Stern what Howard Stern does? And the answer is no. And 
I think what we what we really felt was we needed to stay local, but at the same time, we couldn't just be a one-trick pony. We couldn't just be the kind of talk show that only talked politics. That we needed to really be more broad-based. And, you know, th- that's been good because we've been able to talk about so many different things without it feeling like, you know, it's contrived or, or whatever, that it's actually kind of grown to more of an organic type of, you know, broad-based uh, show. You know, I mean, you know, certainly there are shows that have their niche and it's, you know, either a sports thing or politics, but we do all of it. And it could be about relationships. It could be about health. It can be about sports or politics or, you know, even, you know, stories from our own, you know, personal lives because we've been, you know, we've been very open about things that have gone on in our own lives. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've maintained our longevity is because I think by doing that, people have now seen us more as people rather than just voices and, you know, people in the community. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think you can just ingratiate yourself with an audience if you're really just hyper-focusing on one issue or one topic. Or how about one point of view? Has the um, increased polarization of the political scene in America uh, impacted you at all? Whereas um, people are more offended maybe by what you say politically, if you say something against what they believe, or uh, on the other hand, expect you to just sort of uh, be an amplifier for their point of view. Has the Trump era made it a little bit more difficult to be more of a centrist position and more of a variety in terms of your political views? It's, it's a really good question and a, and a real, um, I, I can't say I've ever seen anything like what we're facing today. Um, we've never really shied away from, from any topics, but we also realize that if we just focus on the politics of the day, you know, you alienate a certain a part of your audience that it's not really there for that part of your show. And we've had to kind of, you know, feel out the balance of what's an appropriate amount of, you know, political talk and what's an inappropriate amount of political talk. I mean, you know, we're in Massachusetts. It's, you know, it's a, it's a heavily uh, democratic state, but there's also a sizable number of our audience that, voted for Donald Trump, then the question has been, well, you know, at what point do you say uh, it's okay to talk about him and it's okay to express your feelings towards him? And at the same time, where do you begin alienating the other side? It's a real difficult balance. It's, it's not something that I've ever, I've ever experienced in this business before. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, working on, you know, nearly 30 years or about 30 years. And this has been a really challenging time. On the other hand, I think what we've done is, you know, we we will certainly talk about the politics of the day and about Trump's influence on stuff. But I also think it's my job in particular to kind of bring things back to a more centered point of view, as opposed to everything being anti-Trump. We also look at or try to attempt to bring the audience back to a more, um, you know, some more generalizations about what's going on in the world, too. And I'd imagine I don't know if that's that, a real good answer. <laughs> your answer is good. I, I guess your answer is an honest answer, and it can't be too good because I don't think anybody has this licked. I was going to say it really is a work no. in progress, isn't it? Well, I think when when you consider how you know easily offended and politically correct we've become as a country, 
um, and we do what we do, and we understand that there there are certain risks and uh, certain calculated risks by what we by what we say. Um, that you're always kind of mindful of, you know, am I going too far with this? Am am I going far enough? Um, there's a real uh, there's a real challenges for not just our show, but I think you know a lot of sh- you know uh, people in our business are really trying to figure out you know where our role is here because it's 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 we're walking in dangerous territory no doubt um, at, at times but at the, but at the same time it's a necessary territory we have to we have to reflect what's going on and you also have, so to, have to be edgy i mean you have to be edgy being edgy is your is your um stock and trade but i have noticed right. that in the last six months, the last year, we're not even talking about five years, ten years. We're talking this is this this seems to be um, exponentially growing. Political correctness has reached a point where uh, it's very dangerous to be funny. It's dangerous mm-hmm. that you could be misunderstood. Uh, it's just dangerous to deal with anything that isn't extremely planned, vanilla. Center, yeah, uh, you, it's it's got to be different now than it ever com- has been. You look at stand-up comedy today. Um, I think you find one of the most remarkable changes in that culture, um, maybe of anything. You know, when have you ever ever heard a comedian have to apologize for a joke they told on stage? They've never had to do that. It's a joke. It's 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 meant to elicit a response. It could be a groan. It could be a laugh. It could be you know, anything, but you know, you have comedians now that are forced to sign um, waivers before they hit the stage about what they can and cannot talk about. You know, that's I, to the best of my knowledge. That's never happened as a general rule, but it's happening more and more. What, I, I'm kind of surprised. I, we haven't had a whole lot of um, interference, like corporate interference, saying you are not to talk about this or you are to talk about this. We haven't had that. We, we've been very fortunate in the fact that our company saga communications has kind of you know given us the reins to kind of gauge this on our own and while it is is challenging i kind of like the fact that you know they have given us enough leeway to feel like you know we're adult enough to figure this out but you know yeah we're it's an extraordinary time that we're living where i think people are very very much afraid of offending anybody and what happens is the moment you start thinking like that, you've, you've killed any real discourse about issues. I mean, we're so polarized that, uh, you know, it's either, it's either I'm right or you're absolutely wrong. There's no meeting halfway. And yeah. you know, politics has gotten this way. Culture has gotten this way. It's a really remarkable time. Yeah. So, uh, again, a work in progress. You are working under these conditions. And uh, do you feel that it is eroding the show? Is it forcing you, though, to rise to a higher level? Where, what impact has it had on your success to this point? Well, it, it goes back to the question of, you know, the general approach we take about, the, you know, on the show, you know, content wise. Do we only focus about politics? No, because, you know, politics can be so you know, so polarizing and, and, and such a negative 
But everything is uh, politics know. these days. Everything is politics. I, I mean, the only place that seems to really be getting away with the kind of satire that we used to see in a mainstream venue is Saturday Night Live. They they, they, they seem to be um, thriving on this. Uh, and I'm amazed. They, they are. I'm, I'm, but even I'm amazed they get away with it in this culture. But, right. But, but even they have their critics. And, and, and you yes. know, satirists, you know, if you go back um you know over the generations you know satire has always had its, its critics but there are some and it's danger and it's danger as, as real political speech yeah you know, yeah and, no, and, 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 uh, sat, and satirists uh, back satirists have have often paid the price many have been thrown sure. off many have been in jail look at look at lenny bruce the first major satirist and political humorist of of the modern era in a broad sense he did not enjoy great wealth and great happiness as a result of the uh the stand he took in terms of his comedy it's a a great comparison because i mean when you think about you know lenny bruce towards the end of his life and going on you know going on stage and saying certain words that by today's standards are fairly benign but mm-hmm. this is those words back in the 50s and early 60s where, you know, those were shocking, um, you know, shocking epithets or whatever it may be. Um, you couldn't, it's almost like we've kind of gone back to that mindset. You know, there are certain things that are, you know, forbidden after many years of having, you know, uh, you know many taboo subjects suddenly a part of our, you know, regular language and conversation. You have a show that you do every year live, uh, and it seems to be gaining in momentum. Tell our listeners a bit about it. Well, uh, six years ago, we were trying to figure out uh, some new things to do, and we thought about doing uh, the show live in a theater setting. And it, it was it was Bax and O'Brien live, and we we you know it was a local theater that had about five hundred seats. And, you know, we've got a musical guest and we had some of our normal you know, guests on the stage. And it just wound up being a free flowing type of, uh, of, of program that, you know, there was nothing, you know, the, the language was a little bit looser. It was, uh, right, right. I want know, to point out, I want I to point out to the audience, uh, Bax, I want to point out that this was not live on the air. This was a, a, a program oh, no. that the, like a theatrical program, a variety show that the two of you did. It was not on the air. It was at night for a paid audience this absolutely this is a stage show this is the kind of this is the kind of show that could lose an fcc <laughs> exactly but we've uh, but we've sold uh we've done that for six straight years we sold it out every year we sold it out within i think the longest we waited for a sellout was was uh three weeks and uh the plans this year are to go to possibly a bigger venue and uh, we'll see what happens. But you know, it's, it's been a very, very successful you know, part of what we do. I hope that if you go to a bigger venue, it doesn't interfere with the vibe, you know, with the intimacy. Um, I think the size of a venue is very important for the success of a show. And I think you, hi- you guys have it at the right size. Of course, you know, I wish you the best in expanding it, but I'm sure you've thought about that. Well, part of, part of the issue we have is that the theater is no longer in operation. So, you know, we may be forced to go to another place, but the, I think the place we we're going that we are considering is not too large. It's still be a manageable, intimate enough setting, uh, that it will have the same, the same vibe. And, you know, and like I said, we've, we've, it, 
the, the show is a, a combination of, of you know, what we do on the air with videos and, you know, live music and comedy. It's just, I don't think anybody goes out of there feeling like they didn't get their money's worth. What is the nature of the classic rock audience in 2019? Now, you, you know, my background, I go back to the progressive rock days. Uh, mm-hmm. I go back to the AOR days. It's a term I even coined when it became a little more, uh, shall we say, researched and a little bit more um, uh, competitive in terms of playing music at certain times, keep people listening, quarter-hour crossover. All of that stuff started to come into it. I was part of that. And uh, it, it, it grew out of what was called the hippie era, and it was counterculture, and it was against the war and in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and it was sort of dabbled in a, uh, shall we say, a liberal point of view about drugs. And it was, you know, it was kind of, uh, you know, it, it was edgy as hell. Uh, and it was a youth audience. I remember I was, it was part of youth oriented radio. The prime demo was 18 to 34. We had some hip high school kids in the audience, but it was mostly college kids and, uh, hip people already out in the world. It was very hip. It was very progressive and it was very edgy. Now, Right. Uh, the, the, the classic rock stations still play the same music from that era, but, uh, but the audiences have grown older. Many of them have become mm-hmm. stockbrokers. Many of them have become Trump voters. Many are Republicans and conservatives. What is the what is the general vibe of the core of classic rock today? Uh, so many years later, having its roots in that cultural stew that I just described. Right. When, when I first started, this is not my first classic rock station. Uh, I was on a classic hit station in Milwaukee, WKLH. Um, back in the early 90s. And nearly all of that music went from 1964 to 1985, 86 at the latest. If a a, a more traditional classic rock artist would be something new, maybe you get to hear that song um, played. Today's classic rock audience has aged significantly. And with, you know, Target audiences being what they are, um, you know, that older segment of our audience has kind of moved into more of an, I hate to say this, but they're no longer the primary focus of today's classic rock audience. So what has happened, and, and we are not unique in this, a lot of classic rock stations have done this, they have begun integrating more music from the 1990s, specifically you know, you'll start hearing more music from uh, like Pearl Jam or Nirvana or the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And, and you know, people are saying, well, that's classic rock. Well, if you look at it, if you look at it, my the way I describe it is when I started at WAQ, Rock 102 in Springfield in 1995, Led Zeppelin 4 was 25 years old. Hmm. Today, Pearl Jam's first album is 25 years old. Wow, Nirvana is, a, yeah. is 25 years old. So the music that you know, the kids of, ninth, of the 1990s were listening to, the music that is you know, nostalgic to them, they're now in the 25, 54-year-old demo, which is you know, really how the audience has, has grown. And that's always been the part of the audience that you know, advertisers are, are most interested in. So it's, it's a natural 
progressive. It's still classic rock, but the the bar has been shifted ever so slightly. Yeah. Do you find do you find that the twenty somethings and the thirty somethings? Because I know you got them in your audience. Because it, it in the Springfield, Massachusetts area, and we'll talk about the station's reach in a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys are major celebrities. I, I mean, I have the benefit of considering you a friend. We have lunch right. together. We hang out together because I've lived in that area and work in that area. You and I obviously met. We know each other. We played in softball games together. Wherever <laughs> you go, yep. within seven exits on uh, Interstate 91, <laughs> you're a superstar. And that's got to be weird because you go 20 exits down the road and you're anon- you're anonymous again. <laughs> I, I know, it, it, uh, it's, but, it's uh, funny, but I, I, I find the question I'm asking is, do younger people in the adult audience still like Led Zeppelin? Are there new people, younger people that still like Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, the Doobie Brothers? Uh, I, Mac, I have to tell you a great story that has to do with my kids. Now, my kids have been exposed to a lot of different kinds of music um, over the years, just not only because I'm in radio, but the music I play at home. My oldest daughter is 19. If I were to say, Sophie, what's some of your favorite musical artists of all time? I guarantee you the first five are in the classic rock era. Um, She's an enormous David Bowie fan. Now, I'm a David Bowie fan. I guess in some ways she you know, pick that up from me, but she loves David Bowie. Um, my middle daughter uh, was playing um, some songs on Spotify the other day, and she was playing R&B songs from the, from the 1960s. You know, she was playing uh, Aretha Franklin. She was playing Sam Cooke. She was playing all this music that I didn't really expose her to, uh, at least not to the degree that she loves it. But yeah, cause there are kids today that, are finding that the music that's produced today is harder to find, harder to absorb, harder to um, uh, to understand, but that the classics, you know, are some of the, are, are really what still speak to, to them. So yeah, there's a huge population of kids that realize that the music of Led Zeppelin is still very valid. Um, the music of Pink Floyd still valid, still means something to those to those kids, even though it's, you know, they're not first generation to that music, that music is, is in some real ways, you know, timeless. My, my kids know every song by the Beatles. They'll sing all the words to them. And that's, that's not just by exposure. It's just, that's what they find themselves gravitating to when things aren't reaching them, you know, contemporary music isn't, uh, isn't reaching to them. Are you finding there are people in your audience that are not classic rock fans, but are talk radio fans that only listen to you guys and uh, tune out after you're off the air at 10 o'clock? I do all, all the time. And what's really interesting to me is it's, it's a, a wide breadth of, of age groups and uh, of people who, who listen who have been told by people they know, oh, you've got to listen to Max and O'Brien, and they, and, and they do. We were, we were at some event uh, a couple of years ago, and there was a retired judge, probably deep into his 80s, who came up to us and said, I listen to your show all the time. Um, 
and he he could cite things that were going on, you know, in in the show because you know, to him it's it was the most compelling talk show in the market, and you know he was very much involved in politics and said, you know, I'm 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 learning more from you guys than I'm learning than I've learned from anybody else, which I thought was really interesting. We hear that quite a lot, actually. Maybe you're getting too serious. Got to watch yourself. <laughs> I know. You know, you'll wind That's up being on public radio. Too long. We have to move on to something stupid to kind of bring us well, back to center. I, as I said earlier, I'm amazed at how you swing from a really serious, intelligent discussion about politics and life issues to being stupid. And I don't mean stupid and, and, and intelligent. <laughs> I mean, I like the word goofball. You guys are goofy. And uh, it's something that... Um, personalities on traditional news talk radio don't have the luxury of being you still have a little bit of that shock jock element in you uh, i think uh, well, o'brien even more than you you seem to be the um the balancing factor um how about you and o'brien you guys have been on the air together for 24 years and mm-hmm. um uh, the station doesn't buy the ratings. People who are in the industry uh, know that Saga has uh, gotten uh, rid of its dependency on um, Arbitron and then Nielsen and seems to be doing very well without it. Uh, I yeah. see the ratings uh, being a trade publisher. And uh, without getting into the weeds of ratings, you guys are gigantic. I mean, we're talking. Well, hold, well, gi- hold on. Let, let me let me get a pen. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to write down these numbers, but uh, <laughs> well, thank you. I mean, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, that's I, part. Listen, Bax. One of the reasons I'm having you on this podcast is because of the tremendous success that uh, that you and John have accrued on this radio station, and um, it's uh, it, it's it's kind of shocking. Um, now, how big a station is this? Uh, you know, a lot of people, Western Massachusetts is kind of a mysterious place to people. They think of Boston, but we're talking a highly populated right. area and it's right on the border with Northern Connecticut. What is the range that this massive 102.1 uh, uh, signal covers? Well, it's, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary signal. If, if you can try to imagine it, you know, try to imagine on a map what New England looks like. So, you know, we're based just out of, outside of Springfield, but our signal goes as far north as areas of Vermont and as far south as New Haven, Connecticut. We've even heard some people from as far as Long Island be able to hear it. I've heard you on Long Island, Island, and I've also heard you in Bridgeport. Yeah, and so you know, we cover everything in, in between. And again, since we don't have you know, numbers to really you know, to, to gauge this, um, we know that a great deal of our audience comes from Hartford, Connecticut. So while Springfield itself it may not be a larger market, combine that with Hartford, Connecticut, right. and suddenly it's a it's a it's a real it's a real strong sized market. You know, uh, it's just it's just not you know seen that way by um, you know by the by the ratings companies. But the realistic part of it is it's it's a pretty major market. Yeah, no doubt about it. Now, in, in terms of selling without ratings, it's not that hard to sell local business when the salesman walks in off the street and says, um, I'm representing um, Rock 102, um, W-A-Q-Y, 
and uh, the Bax and O'Brien show when the odds are, the odds are that the proprietor mm-hmm. will know either Rock 102 or the Bax and O'Brien show and know it well. That's the part that I find so, so interesting. And I share this with other people listening to this. A, a large number of people listening to this podcast are in the radio industry. And, and you know, radio is, is a tougher and tougher sale in the face of all the other media that it competes with today. But so, so to me, whose business is national and I travel around and I live in different places, I'm, I'm recording my end of this conversation down in South Florida and, you, and you're up in, in the Springfield area. Um, to be able to go to any store or to be able to go to any person or to call any politician and have the odds be that they've heard of you and listen in a place that's mm-hmm. not a two-horse town but a, but a real no. bustling metro, that's a remarkable sales tool, isn't it? Well, you know, when Saga first decided to no longer subscribe, there was a, a, a great deal of fear about what that was really going to mean on, on a sales uh, point of view. You know, how do you sell the station um, without it, without that tool? And what we found was, is that it's not really a necessary tool if your station is providing results for its clients. Right. So if you're advertising and suddenly people are telling you, yeah, I heard it on the Baxter Prime show, or I heard it on Rock 102, or you know, whatever station it may be, you know, that is sometimes far more impactful than if you just, you know, show a client a bunch of, you know, numbers that, you know, say what you want, you know, may or may not be truly reflective of the audience for that particular quarter of the year. So I think for, for us, many of our clients understand what we provide. They understand, you know, what, advertising the Baxter O'Brien show means to their business. And, you know, when there are events that need to be done, we're one of the few companies I still think, you know, really look at like sales promotions for our station and for our clients as a real viable value added entity. And we do them better than, you know, some of the other larger, uh, you know, companies that are you know operating locally simply because, one, we are able to maintain most of our staff, which some of them have not. Um, and I think we just take a, an approach where clients see the real value in not only the association with our radio station, but you know, having us be a part of their business and, mm-hmm. and getting us out there. I mean, we're, we're out all the time. Yeah, it has to be pointed out. It has to be pointed out also that um, uh, it's not like you're operating without competition. All the other major mega corporations of radio are in the Springfield market as well. It's a very, very um, highly radioed uh, market. Uh, Look, I I have never worked uh, within Saga. I I deal with Saga from the outside as I deal with all the radio companies. I get the impression that Saga operates. It marches to the beat of its own drum and um, has adhered to many principles that um, are part of radio's greater days. Uh, that it's what I'm trying to say is that it's a damn good company. And I know you're not going to say it's a it, bad company, but what are some of the things about Saga that has given it a re- that have given it a reputation for being a good company? Well, I, I without naming names, the first company I worked for many many years ago was not a particularly great company. Um, so it was 
so at the time, uh, when I left that job and started working for Saga, I compared it to, you know, the difference between eating prime rib and a Slim Jim. Um, their commitment to their people is different than you see in other companies. Their commitment to local is, uh, greater than not bogged down by, uh, by ratings information. Obviously revenue is very, very important, but I think the thing that has separated, uh, saga from, from so many, uh, other operators is that when the, the rules changed for ownership, you know, obviously like many companies, we, you know, we stepped up, we bought companies, but we never, I mean, we bought other stations, but we never bought stations for, you know, more than they were worth. We weren't just spending money to spend money. Every property was bought with a lot of thought, with a lot of, um, with a lot of planning. And so when you look at the, at the figures now about, you know, how much Saga has in debt as compared to some of the other, uh, you know, larger companies that are, are you know, drowning in debt, it's two totally different cultures. I mean, yeah. the debt we have is, is, is manageable. You look at our stock price, it's, it's, it's reasonably healthy compared to, you know, some that have been delisted. I mean, it's, 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 I do not take a moment of what I do and who I work for for granted. I have been very, very fortunate to work for this company and for as long as I have. And this is my third station with this company, uh, going back to my days in Milwaukee and a brief uh, time in central Illinois, and then coming here in 1995 um, and you know, having the opportunity to work for other people along the way. Um, I'm very grateful that we did not take those opportunities. I mean, to have stayed in this market at this station for 24 years doesn't really happen anywhere anymore. And um, I don't think anybody's more aware of that than myself and my partner, John O'Brien. It's just, you know, we, we understand that, you know, it is much better to have the longevity of this situation than any other job in radio. I, I, I would not trade it for any other job. No, and, 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 and I'm glad you're saying this because so many people in radio feel that syndication is a natural step up the ladder of success from being in a local market. But I've got to tell you, I know a lot of people in national syndication whose situations financially uh, and in terms of satisfaction and in terms of moving that needle and making an impact on people's lives can compare to the success mm -hmm. that you've enjoyed and, and I think it's very important that people realize that a career could be forged in a, um, uh, a local market or community or town, city, whatever you want to call it, a region uh, in this industry called radio. Um, I was going down a certain path and we, we, went, we went in a different direction. Um, I was going to ask you, how do you get along with John O'Brien? John O'Brien, from my perspective, is a quirky character, and uh, he's kind of curmudgeonly and uh, maybe yep. not always the easiest guy to get along with. Uh, very talented on the air and uh, basically a nice man. He's uh, been through his own issues health-wise, all of which have been talked mm -hmm. about on the air. Uh, and since many of the people listening to this program are in partnerships uh, that are challenging. What advice do you have mm -hmm. for them? And tell us a bit about your partnership with John O'Brien. Well, it, it's, it really is very much like a long-term, uh, marriage. Um, there is some, 
you know, there is some sacrifice along the way for the benefit of, of the partnership. We, we are very, very different people. We don't necessarily see eye to eye on, on very many things other than the quality of the show. And that's actually been um, very organically the appeal of the show is that you basically argue for four and a half hours uh, every day. But we realize that we both understand that that's a part of what makes the show compelling is that, you know, we don't necessarily have to be best of friends. We don't necessarily have to agree with each other. But as long as we're, we figure out not to take that personally while we're on the air and just realize that listen, this, this is part of our, of our show, you know, we've been able to, to weather a lot of different things over the years. I mean, it hasn't always been a smooth trip, but you know, I, I defy you to find any partnership that's lasted this long that's been totally smooth. But on the, but on the other hand, like you said, you know, John's had his, uh, his uh, you know, personal uh, issues. He's had cancer twice. He's had open-heart surgery. He, uh, a few other things along the way. You know, the bottom line is he has given enough of a glimpse of his personal life over the years to the audience that they really feel as though they're a part of, of their family. And, you know, they've done the same when I've you know, expressed things that have gone on in my life or, you know, our, our producer, Steve Nagel, same thing you know, with him. I mean, he's had some personal things and the audience has embraced it because everything that we've talked about is relatable. Yeah, and well, so, you've talked about some heavy-duty things. I want people to understand when they talk about personal things, we're not talking about their car breaking down. John O'Brien no. was facing a life-and-death struggle against cancer, and uh, this was mm-hmm. a major, major soap opera on that show for a long time. You've been through your own major personal crises uh, in terms of sure. your life, and uh, it has yeah. been openly discussed on the air. And you talk about producer Steve Nagel, who, who is sort of a third-wheel personality on the show. His was even more dramatic mm-hmm. than either of you or John's, uh, with uh, yeah, the, the death of a young uh, wife and him, and him having young children. Uh, talk about that. Steve's uh, wife had developed uh, cancer, and it was very, very aggressive, and... Uh, it, it took her life way, way too young. And, uh, you know, Steve is raising, you know, two daughters. Uh, I think that at the time they were like, you know, five and seven years old. I mean, they're very, very, very young kids. Um, and you know, he took some time off and came back and, and talked very, very openly and very passionately about, um, what had gone on and, and, and where he's at. And, you know, uh, I think the show for him in, in a lot of ways has been very cathartic as has been for, you know, for me and some of my personal issues, you know, divorce and, you know, raising, you know, my kids and, you know, John's health, you know, I think when you, when you allow yourself to be you, to be human and to talk about the kinds of struggles that people have every single day, who, I mean, who hasn't been touched by cancer? Who hasn't lost somebody? Who hasn't had somebody in their family go through, you know, divorce? And then, you know, uh, remarriage and, and, and some of the many things that we've we've dealt with, you know, fertility issues. I mean, we could talk about that, too. You know, these things really open a door to, you know, for the audience. They really feel as though we are a, a part of their family. And they've 
I, I think that's created this this bond uh, that you know is has been so valuable and and rare. I mean, I, you know, there's a there's a lot of people in radio that I don't think you know open themselves up in the way that the three of us, particularly John, uh, have done. Uh, it, it's been it's it's been very empowering to us, very fulfilling to us, knowing that you know we have the support of our of our audience. And when John, I've never seen anything. I've never heard surgery, anything. It was a news event. Uh, Bax, I've never heard or seen anything quite on this level. That's why I'm bringing it up here. Um, yeah, it's uh, here. We have a show that has its roots in shock jock uh, culture, that has a couple of hosts that swing from talking about. Uh, serious politics and local issues to being goofballs. And then you have three men, relatively young men, not kids, sharing major life crises on the air with the audience getting involved. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's no wonder that uh, this show is uh, a part of the life of such a significant percentage of the population of a very large metro area so uh yeah you know i i think it's pretty uh it's pretty amazing how do you feel about um the future are you uh, are you involved in uh expanding to the internet you're doing podcasts uh you still got your finger in the music uh, at all what's what's going on well the the we are very active. I would say me and, and Steve Nagel in particular, very active in um, branding the show through social media, very active in you know, creating a, a, a larger presence where the show continues even after the microphones are off. Um, and we look at it purely as a, as just a branding opportunity. Um, we do podcast our show every day and, you know, it's available for, for people to, to download and stream. Um, I, I see us doing a lot more podcasting. I see us doing a lot more. Um, I, I really see social media as kind of still at, at its infancy mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, we're just really kind of going through the growing pains of what that can mean. I mean, there are individuals who have branded themselves without radio shows or without, you know, you know, much fanfare, but yet you see them on YouTube and, they're celebrities in, in their own right. You know, that's, I see that growing. Um, you know, as, as far as like traditional, you know, radio goes, I mean, I, I don't know what the future holds for, you know, regular old meat and potato transmitters. Um, but, you know, I believe the brand of the Baxton O'Brien show still has a lot of legs on it and still has some time before you know that expires I, I don't see us ending that anytime soon and there you have it a conversation with mike baxendale of the mega successful baxon o'brien morning talk show on springfield massachusetts classic rock giant waqi rock 102 to learn more about bax visit www.rock102.com Thank you for downloading this program from Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and the Podcast One app, and for following our Tuesday tweets announcing the names of our weekly guests. To sign up, it's at MHInterview. I can be reached directly via email at michael at talkers.com. If you find this show to be of interest and value, please subscribe to it as well as giving it a positive five-star review on Apple Podcasts. The Michael Harrison Interview. Thank you 
for listening. The Michael Harrison Interview is a presentation of Podcast One produced in association with Talkers Magazine and Good Phone Communications. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music